I'm mostly just disappointed that I didn't get to say Buffalo Hump. Howdy! You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share their views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. And I am Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. We've all seen movies with fierce Indian warriors. We know the stereotype and the myth. But for early Texas settlers, and especially in 1840, the Comanche controlled a vast majority of the Texas plains and represented a real threat. Today we discuss the Great Raid, where the Comanche and their allies launched an attack on South Texas that forever changed history. But first, what's your favorite Tex-Mex menu item? I like muchachos. Muchacho. <laughs> I... I'm kind of partial to huevos rancheros. Mm, and I love taquitos. I would like a taquito. Taquitos are delicious. We love movies too, and a lot of what we think we know about Native Americans in the Old West comes from those movies. So guys, what are some of your favorite moments from movies about American Indians of the Old West? Well, Mike, I like the movies, The Searchers. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, and it's John Wayne movie. And there's a scene where he finally finds his niece who's been kidnapped by the Comanche Indians. And he finally finds this tribe in this camp where they're holding her. He thinks they're holding her. The bad guy's name is Scar, and he's this tall, imposing, brave, you know, he's got the war bonnet on and the buckskins and get this big scar across his face. And he looks so fierce. And that, to me, that's just like, that's the Comanche chief that I, that, that I just envisioned in all the movies. And then the other one is another John Wayne movie called The Stagecoach. And it's the famous chase of the stagecoach of the Indians and of the Comanche. And so those are the things that I really think about when I think about Indians in the Old West. Well, wasn't Scar played by like an Italian actor? A German like actor, German. actually. Okay. A German actor. So welcome to Hollywood cinema. Right. Well, I was going to say I really like The Searchers, but you stole that. So Sorry. I'm going to go with uh, that famous scene at the beginning of Back to the Future 3, <laughs> where uh, Marty McFly takes off in the <laughs> DeLorean in 1950s California desert. And there's the mural at the drive-in behind him of the Indians painted there because it's an Old West themed drive-in. And he goes back in time and... All of a sudden, there's like an Indian war band right behind him chasing him. What about you, Mike? Well, for me, I'm a huge Clint Eastwood fan, but I absolutely adore the outlaw Josie Wales. And one of the best scenes in that whole movie is when Josie Wales rides out to get his men back who've been captured by 10 bears. And he goes and he sees 10 bears and he's this huge imposing Comanche warrior chief and they're all ready and expected for battle. And it's these two very hard men and then they shake hands and agree that they're not going to fight because they're both super tough. And then they ride away on their horses. And it's an amazing scene. It's a fantastic speech. I I just, I can't, every time I see it, it just kind of gives you chills. It's the same guy who was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So these are all great scenes, but are they based on real life or are the stereotypes and the myth that we've created from history? Today, I think we'll get a little closer to answering that question. Before we start, though, we want to take a moment for a few disclaimers about this episode. First, we're not really going to use the words Native American, American Indian, Indigenous Peoples, or if you're Canadian, First Nations. For the sake of consistency with our sources and for brevity, we're mostly going to stick with the term Indian. Second, as you probably found out in our French Texas and Lafitte episodes, our ability to pronounce languages other than our own is pretty laughable. So if you are a Comanche speaker, we sincerely apologize in advance for butchering your language. So, who were the Comanche? The Comanche were originally hunter-gatherers from what is now Wyoming, and they were culturally and linguistically part of the Shoshone people. 
They broke off from the Shoshone, though, when horses were introduced to the plains by the Pueblo Indians of New Mexico in the 1680s. And they may actually have been the first group of Plains Indians to integrate the horse into their culture. Now, the introduction of the horse into Plains Indian culture was really a fundamental paradigm shift. Famed Texas historian Walter Prescott Webb said, Steam, electricity, and gasoline have wrought no greater changes in our culture than did horses in the culture of the Plains Indians. They were no longer limited at that point to the areas where they could walk to and from within a season, and they could range as far as and wide as they wanted to. The horse became the central focus of the Comanche's entire existence, and the acquisition of horses was critical to expanding the capability and the wealth of the tribe and the individual. If you're going to quote Texas authors, could you please do it in a hilarious Sam Elliott voice? (laughs) Okay, next time I'll try that. Some sources believe the Comanche split off from the Shoshone so they could move south in search of wild Mustang herds in Texas and to be closer to Spanish settlements along the Rio Grande and in Mexico where more horses could be acquired through trades or raiding. The Comanche called themselves Nmnu, which probably meant the people. The Spanish word Comanche came from the language of another Shoshone people, the Ute, and meant enemy, which speaks volumes about how they were perceived by other tribes. As they continued south, the Comanche evolved and grew in size. There was not a unified Comanche tribe, but instead they were split into autonomous groups called bands, each one with chiefs as leaders, but each band and its people only answerable to themselves. By the mid-1700s, Comanche territory stretched from central Texas north into Kansas and as far west as New Mexico along the Rio Grande. Almost the entire southern plains region became known as Comancheria. During this time, they also earned a reputation as fierce warriors and cunning horse thieves. Prescott Webb described them as people whose courage and ferocity were unsurpassed by red or white anywhere. They were frequently at war with most of the other Plains tribes as well as the Apache, but maintained good relations with the Kiowa, Wichita, and Arapaho, with some Arapahos even adopting Comanche culture and becoming the Charitikas, or Dog Eaters Band. When the Comanche entered Texas, of course they encountered the Spanish, and relations between the two were mixed from the beginning. While raids and thefts of horses were common, New Mexico-based traders, known as Comancheros, established a profitable trade network with the Comanche, but so did the French in the 1720s. Probably this was our old friend Saint-Denis. In the mid-1700s, the French provided firearms to the Comanche, and war with the Spanish quickly followed. Peace was established in the 1780s, at least as far as settlements in New Mexico were concerned, but raids into Mexico continued into the 1870s. So according to historian Robert M. Utley in his book, Lone Star Justice, in the 1820s and 30s, there were a couple of events that occurred to increase the intensity of Comanche raids on Mexico and in Texas. First, the appearance of American traders on the Arkansas River. Then there was increased competition from eastern tribes that had been pushed out of the United States. And trade with those incoming tribes all created a rapidly expanding market for Mexican stock. Just as important, though, was the rise of the Anglo-Texas colonies. One of the main reasons Mexico allowed Anglos into Texas was to create a buffer between Mexico Mexico and the Comanche, but cultural divisions between the three only led to three distinct cultures in conflict with each other. So whatever the relationship between the Comanche and Mexico, the relations between Anglo-Texans and the Comanche was not positive at all. To the Anglos, all Indians were bent on mischief and mayhem and a threat to safety and security. For the first few years, as the colonies established themselves, the Comanche were a vague threat 
just too far away to worry about. But as the Anglos pushed west, conflict was inevitable. A while ago, we talked about how, back in 1831, the Mexican government had given the town of Gonzales a small cannon for protection from the Comanche. And we talked about the role that that cannon played in the start of the Texas Revolution. But the revolution itself had an effect on relations between Texas and the Comanche. As Texans retreated before Santa Ana's army in the runaway scrape, the communities and settlers left on the frontier became much more vulnerable, even after the war. In the summer of 1836, just a month after the Battle of San Jacinto, a Comanche and a Kiowa raiding party attacked Parker's Fort, a small wooden stockade near what is now Waco. They killed five and carried away two women and three small children, including a 12-year-old Cynthia Ann Parker. This scene would be repeated over and over again as the Anglos expanded west. And remember that name, Cynthia Ann Parker. The Republic of Texas quickly established ranging companies of citizen soldiers to patrol the frontier to protect settlers from raiding Indians. These ranging companies would eventually become the famed Texas Rangers, and a great deal of their focus was on the Comanche. President Sam Houston, while recognizing the need for the Rangers to defend the frontier, pursued a peaceful policy towards the Indians. He was largely successful with the Cherokee, who he had lived with for many years, and some of the smaller, more settled tribes. He was even able to negotiate a treaty with the Pinatakas, the largest and most powerful southern Comanche band at the time. But he failed to recognize that there was no unified political structure among the Comanche that could bind all the bands to an agreement made with one band. There also wasn't any real way even the chiefs who signed the treaty could or would enforce those agreements among their own warriors. There also wasn't much desire within the Texas political structure to support this treaty, as the Senate refused to accept the terms establishing the boundary of Comanche territory. Mirabeau Lamar, the next president of the Republic, was the opposite of Houston in nearly every way. He favored a very hostile and aggressive policy towards the Indians, driving out the Cherokee and ordering rangers to mount attacks on the Comanche. This leads us to 1840. Weakened by a smallpox outbreak and concerned about Texas belligerents, the Pinnataka again tried to negotiate another treaty. They sent a party to meet Ranger Captain Henry Carnes and requested a conference with the Texans to make peace. Carnes told them they would only meet if the Comanche returned all the known white captives. They agreed to meet in early March in San Antonio. Now, according to Walter Prescott Webb, Carnes, who was soon to depart for business in New Orleans and would not be part of the conference, wrote the government advising that if they met with the Comanche, they could not be trusted to keep their word. And he recommended that any Indians who came to the council under the banner of truce would be seized as hostages to force the Comanche to return all the white captives. And this was a suggestion that was readily accepted by the government as it was in full keeping with the vigorous policy adopted by Lamar. On March 19th at the Council House in San Antonio, 75 Pinnataka, including 12 chiefs and a number of women and children, arrived to negotiate with the Texans. The Comanche only brought one captive, a young girl named Matilda Lockhart, who had been horribly abused in her captivity. When they were asked where the rest of the captives were, the Comanche said she was the only one they had, but Lockhart spoke up and said there were 13 other captives that were being held back for further ransom. Well, things broke down very quickly from that, and fighting erupted when the chiefs tried to run out of the house and escape. Over 30 Comanche, including all 12 chiefs, were killed, and the rest of the Comanche were made captives. One of the women was released and sent back to give warning to the rest of the tribes to return the white captives or face similar fate. Comanches of all tribes were enraged, and the Council House fight would never be forgiven or forgotten by them. Pinnataka war chief Buffalo Hump would take this anger and channel it into support for an audacious plan to get revenge on the Texans. 
gathering the warriors from his own band, along with other Comanche bands, as well as Kiowa and Wichita allies. Buffalo Hump assembled a huge raiding party, probably between 400 and 1,000 warriors, and set off for the Gulf Coast over 500 miles away. This would be the largest organized Indian raid ever mounted on white settlements in American history. Texas Rangers first began tracking the raid east of Gonzales, but they were not able to catch up or confront them. Several hundred Comanche broke off to attack unsuspecting Victoria. Located just inland from the Gulf, they killed 13 people and took a large number of horses. The main body of the attack, however, was headed to the seaport of Linville, located off Matagorda Bay near the current town of Port Lavaca, which at the time was the second largest port in Texas after Galveston. The Comanche arrived around dawn on August 8th, and the citizens were surprised to see Comanche so far from their territory. Fortunately, they had a plan that saved many lives. The citizens assumed that Plains Indians were unused to water, so they were able to escape onto barges and ships that were anchored in the bay just out of gunshot range. Only a few of the town's residents were actually killed. But the raiders looted and burned the town while the townspeople watched helplessly offshore. Town founder and namesake John Lynn wrote, While the Indians were cutting up fantastic antics before high heaven, the refugees on the schooner were the spectators, and witnessed with whatever feelings they could command the wanton destruction of their property. He also described how a local judge became so angry that he jumped overboard and waded to shore with his rifle to try to shoot any Comanche who came within range. Lynn claimed the Indians avoided the judge because he had big medicine, which was just as well since his rifle wasn't loaded. After destroying pretty much the whole town and making off with vast quantities of trade goods, silver bullion, horses, and livestock, the Comanche force left to go back home. They made an incredible sight decked out in the white man's coats, umbrellas, ribbons, and tall hats they'd found in Linville's warehouses. The Texans were able to gather a force of several hundred rangers and militia, mostly from Gonzales and DeWitt County, to attack the Comanche as they returned to their territory. They were commanded by Texas Army General Felix Huston, but were really led by experienced Indian fighters Matt Caldwell and Edward Burleson, and they included legendary future ranger captains Ben McCullough and John Coffey Hayes. Of course, it should be no surprise to listeners of this podcast that Creed Taylor was also there. And on August the 12th at Plum Creek, which is near what is now Lockhart outside of Austin, they caught up to the Comanche and surprised them. The Texans aggressively attacked, and after several hours of fighting, the Comanche were put to flight. The, a lot of the loot was recaptured along with some, some of the captives, and the Comanche lost between 30 and 80 men to only a few Texan casualties. Two months later, Ranger Captain John Moore, who had missed the fight at Plum Creek, led an expedition of 90 men in, into the high plains to further attack the Comanche. There they just destroyed a village, and recovered more of the Linville plunder. The Great Raid was really a mixed bag for the Comanche. They did succeed in raiding deep into the interior of Texas, where no one expected them to strike, and the sacking of Linville by such a massive war party became, for all time, the greatest terror of the Texas frontier, and even though they never united enough to do it again, it did not diminish the threat in the minds of Texans. On the other hand, it was a failure because they did not cause as much damage or capture as many goods from the whites as they had set out to. They had also been beaten very badly by the Texans at Plum Creek, and had figured out that the Texans were much better fighters than they thought. The raid also changed the character of the war. From that point on, the Comanche only fought larger groups of citizens and soldiers when they had no other choice. Still, for the next 30 years, the Comanche would remain the dominant force on the Texas Plains, and along with Mexico, would be the most important issue facing the Republican state of Texas. 
After the annexation of Texas and the Mexican War settled for good all boundary disputes with Mexico, the Comanche threat remained and necessitated both the expansion of the Texas Rangers and a line of United States Army forts along the frontier. They stretched from the Big Bend and Pecos area up through the upper Texas plains. In the Civil War, the withdrawal of federal troops from these forts and the loss of manpower to the Confederate Army caused the frontier line to contract by over 100 miles. But after the war, federal troops returned. The 1840s and 50s were also not easy on the Comanche, especially the Penetaka, who had taken most of the losses at the Council House and Plum Creek fights. They withdrew beyond the Red River and were led by Buffalo Hump and fellow chief and Plum Creek survivor Santa Ana. Not that Santa Ana, no. After Plum Creek, Santa Ana favored accommodation with the whites, and in 1846 he would participate in negotiating an extraordinary treaty with John O. Musbach, the personal representative of German Prince Karl of Solms-Braunfels, to allow German immigrants to settle in land near what is now Mason, deep in Comanche territory. This treaty between Comanche and private citizens is the only one like it in the history of the West. It was recognized by the United States government as valid, and uniquely, it might be the only treaty between whites and native tribes that was never broken. For 30 years, the Comanche maintained peaceful and friendly relations with the Comanche settlements in Texas. All of the Plains Indians were severely impacted by further smallpox and cholera outbreaks in the late 1840s. Buffalo Hump and Santa Ana both contracted cholera, and only Buffalo Hump survived. Despite his previous antagonism with the Texans, Buffalo Hump would largely deal peacefully with the whites, and in 1854, bowing to the inevitable, led the remaining Pinnataka onto reservation, first in Texas and later in Oklahoma, where he took up farming and ranching, dying eventually in 1870. Other bands of Comanche would continue to raid and war with the Texans, though. The Noconi, or Wanderers, led by Iron Jacket, named because he wore a coat of old Spanish chainmail, and his son Peda, who had led the attack on Parker's Fort in 1836, as well as the Cojati, or Antelope Beaters, band, were both involved in major conflicts with the Rangers and the Federal troops prior to and after the Civil War. The Medicine Lodge Treaty of 1867 forced most of the Comanche and Kiowa bands into reservation, but the Quahati would resist. The Peta's son, Quana, whose mother was Cynthia Ann Parker, remember her, became a leader of the band. Quana and the Quahati continued to fight against the army until the Red River War in 1874, where the Comanche were defeated, finally ending the Comanche Wars. So what does this all mean? Well, what I found interesting about the Great Raid when I was researching and reading about this is that it's really the central story of the Comanche's relationship with Texas. It illustrates that the conflict between the Texans and the Comanche, as well as other Plains Indians, was a clash between essentially alien cultures. We always want to make our heroes and villains in stories, but like a lot of people that we've talked about and that we will talk about in this show, the truth is that the Comanche were a very complicated and perplexing people with good and bad in them in every way. The Comanche were fierce warriors who were savage and ferocious in their fighting. They did conduct brutal raids on Texas settlers and on the Mexicans and the Spanish and other tribes. They took great pride in being uh, these great horse thieves and they were often cruel to their captives and they broke a lot of the promises that that were made. But they're not unique in this among the other Plains tribes and the same definitely can be said of the whites. The Comanche took captives and stole horses, but the whites, at least in Texas, had slaves, and they took land that belonged to others. And the Comanches also had other qualities that were often overlooked. They were great traders who established peaceful relationships with the New Mexico colonies and American traders in Kansas that lasted over a century. And you can, they could be incredibly kind to their captives, and they usually raised captive children as their own. 
the whites were notorious for breaking just about every treaty that they made with any Indian tribe. But as you see with the Muspak Treaty, the Comanche honored agreements that were respected on all sides. And they could be very generous even with and open even with their former enemies. For example, in 1849, Buffalo Hump himself guided Texas Ranger Captain John S. Rip Ford and his party of rangers in a mapping a trail between San Antonio and El Paso. So much of what we think and that we know and we understand about the Comanche is tied a lot to the parts of the story that have passed into the cultural consciousness, you know, into the myth that we have built up around our history. And we get these things through movies and books and sometimes through the slanted history of the past. But in researching, I was really struck by just how much I learned about the real history of the Comanche people and in their relationship with the state. What do you guys think about this story? What I find interesting about the relationship between Texans and the Indian culture is that there were some people, particularly Sam Houston it comes to mind, who greatly understood the Indian culture and were able to work well within it. And yet there was also people like Mirabeau Lamar who set these very firm policies that had little regard or respect for the Indian culture and the ability to negotiate with this essentially foreign nation that we were living against. Reading through this and going through the research on this, I'm mostly just disappointed that I didn't get to say Buffalo Hump. (laughs) (laughs) But other than that, as a whole, what we get from the movies and the books is that proud nature of the American Indians. And that is a fact that, you know, and that comes through in this is that the Great Raid was mainly a reaction to them being sidelined and, you know, assaulted by this invading force. But it's also incredibly bold. I mean, when we talk about LaSalle walking from Matagorda Bay to Big Bend, we're talking about an armed cavalry of Indian warriors coming from Abilene, sneaking around Austin, sneaking around San Antonio, making it all the way to Victoria. And that's a long way to sneak across the state of Texas. It's a long way to drive. It's a long way to drive. It's a long way to go on horseback and to conduct a raid. With your wives and your kids in a lot of ways, too. This was an essentially disorganized people. They lived in separate bands. Everybody sort of followed what they did. But then they all pulled together and put together this massive raiding party to really strike back at the Texans. The other interesting thing in reading about the Comanche is not the differences between Anglo-Texans and the Comanches, but really the similarities between them. They're both a very stubborn people. They're both very territorial. They they want their land and their property respected. And, and they're very independent. Texans were, were known for being independent. Well, the Comanche were autonomous. I mean, they really were only answerable to each other, to themselves. And they made their own rules and their own laws that they had. And they had just a culture that they respected. But that that's the interesting thing is that we talk about the ideal of the frontier spirit. The Comanche really encapsulate the ideal of the frontier spirit. In, in a lot of ways, but it's just that the clash of the cultures was so alien to each other uh, in their nature. And, and by the time of the 1830s, the Americans coming from the South and from, the, from America into Texas had hardened their, their attitudes toward the Indians as well. The other thing I'm glad about is that history has become kind to these stories. I mean, we paint a picture of who the Comanche were as a people, their culture, the the respect they had. They were fierce warriors. They they were autonomous. They were disagreeable. We we cover the good and the bad of both sides of the equation. And it's like you said, there is no clear hero and villain in these stories. And I think it's it's 
a testament to the quality of, of where history is at today, that we take a very realistic look at how things actually were and try to paint with a, with a brush of the culture of the time. And you can also see that reflected in present day culture where you've got different, you know, different cultures, different families coming together. And we've got to learn to see both the good and bad in each other. Can't we all just get along? As a final note before we sign off, we do want to mention the Comanche Nation, which seeks to preserve the heritage, language, and culture of the Comanche people. There are over 14,000 members of the nation, with over 7,000 living on tribal lands in the Lawton-Fort Sill area. Today, you can visit the Comanche National Museum and Culture Center in Lawton and learn about this great people. Maybe we should take a field trip out to Lawton sometime, and uh, come and take a field trip to Lawton one weekend. What do you think? Maybe we should. That'd be fun. That wraps up things for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you. So find us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. We'll go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. And I am Matt Sean with two N's. And I am Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Thank you.